0: It's so good to see you guys. We're starting a brand new series called 2020, and today's talk is called I Can't Make It Out. And we're not talking now about actual vision, but you know how it is if, you, if you've struggled with getting the right prescription or if you accidentally pick up someone else's glasses. You know what it's like for everything to be fuzzy and for you to see shapes but not be able to make it out. Well, today we want to take that to an existential place, and we want to talk about when, when life is fuzzy and you can't make it out. This all started about eight weeks ago when I brought a talk called Reasons Versus Purpose. And I knew that when God gave it to me, it was one of the greatest talks that he'd ever taught me. In fact, tomorrow night, as soon as, actually I should say, as soon as the second service is over, I get on a plane for Charlotte. Tomorrow night I'll speak to 2,500 people and I'll bring them the same message that I brought to you eight weeks ago. And in that message, we said that you and I could either spend our lives looking for the reasons why bad things happen or we can look for the purpose that God injects into that situation. And we said that the reason why bad things happen, the reasons are always bad. I mean, you can trace them back ultimately to our wrongdoing, our sin, somebody else's sin, or Adam and Eve's sin from in the very beginning. So when you ask why bad things happen, you won't like the answer, and it won't take you anywhere. But what we discovered in that message is that God is capable even When people do bad things and we have bad results, God is still capable of injecting purpose into that situation so that if you decide to live your life looking for God's purpose in the situation, instead of asking why it happened, you're asking God, what do you want to do now? Because God has this marvelous way of stepping into dysfunction and bringing his, his majestic order, his majestic plan But I will tell you this, as we start out today, and I need permission, because this morning I just want to bring an introductory message. I'm not even really sure we're going to get to any particular finish line. But I need your permission to allow me just to bring a message that will introduce the series to you. And then secondly, um, maybe this message today will feel a little dry. We're just going to learn some basics. We're going to lay a foundation for living a life where we can see clearly and live according to purpose. Let me start with this. I think that one of the great challenges for God followers, even who believe that God has a purpose for us, is that we live in a cause and effect world. We live in a world where we're accustomed to seeking for causes. And for all of you who've studied any of the sciences, whether it it's in the high school level, the university level, you know that there is a name, there's an official name for the process of cause and effect. We call it disambiguation. Well, the root of disambiguation is the word am- ambiguous. So what we're saying is, when we see an effect and we don't know the cause for it, we're in ambiguity. But the moment we learn the cause for the effect, it's disambiguation. We're not ambiguous anymore. And that is what we're seeking. If you're in a troubled marriage, it's just natural for you to want to know what is the cause for my marriage to be troubled. And I'm not denying the fact that every once in a while connecting the dots will at least help us take a forward step. But what I am saying is that. We want clarity, and oftentimes, if we got the reason for why things are the way they are, we wouldn't like it very much, and it wouldn't take us anywhere. So I just want to speak into that today, that one of our great challenges is to, as God followers know that God has purpose in our lives, in spite of the things that people are doing wrong, to break out of that cause and effect mindset and to look at what God is doing in the world. Um, Maybe this will illustrate. I have good friends who are non theists or agnostics, and and they love to tell me this. They'll say, Mark, you live in a faith world, and they sort of see it as a lower level. You live in a faith world, and you believe in the supernatural, and and I'm not denying that that's your reality, but you live in that world. I live in the naturalistic world, I, I live in the world of cause and effect. I live in the world where there are natural reasons why things occur, and I don't break out of that. Now, if God will somehow rise from this level of, of belief that you have down here in faith, and if he will move up here and prove himself to me where that there is natural proof that is testable and, and repeatable, then I will believe in the existence of God. Now, it is interesting to me that my non-theist friends rarely ever go behind that veil, They rarely ever ask why the natural order exists. They sort of take it as an assumption. It's just standard equipment. Uh, We were just born into the natural order. Very rarely do they ask a question that penetrates that curtain. But every once in a while, I'll talk to a brave skeptic, and he'll ask me or she'll ask me a question like this. Well, you say that God created the world. Why did he create the world? Or... Adam and Eve sinned. Why did God make people if he knew they were going to sin? Or why did God make the angel Lucifer if he was going to go rogue and turn into the devil? Now, not, not too many times do I get asked that question because, you see, what would happen at that point is it would take us away from the natural world. It would take us away from cause and effect, and we would get into purpose because the question would be, why did God make the natural order? Well, here's the thing that perhaps will help us understand more than anything else. It is just this. God is not subject to the cause and effect world. He has made it. It's been corrupted by sin. But God exists above it all. And he exists in a world of purpose. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 46:9. I am God. There is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all I please. Isn't it great that your life is not ultimately in the hands of a broken cause and effect world where the causes for bad things are bad, but your, hands are in, your life is in the hands of God who exists above it all, who says, I purpose what will happen and what I say will happen will happen. Isaiah 14, 24 underscores that. The Bible says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so it will be, as I have purposed, so it will happen. You see, God's just not, God's not handcuffed to cause and effect. It's like when you prayed and asked God for something, God didn't come back to you and say, Well, it's been a really bad year in heaven. Economy's down up here and devil's going crazy. And yeah, I wanted to help you, but I can't. Nothing ever Causes God to do anything. God is sovereign. He he has purpose, not cause. So today, I want to talk to you about that. You know, because here's my problem. I am so accustomed to living in a cause and effect world, I want to somehow... Translate that and apply that to God and say, Well, why did this happen to me? Why did that happen to me? God, you got to give me the reason why this happened. I don't understand why this happens. I've got stuff in my life going on this week that I just, you know, want to know why am I here. And God is like, Mark, that doesn't work here. I don't live in a cause and effect realm. I remember when I was in the first grade, it's been a long time ago, but when I got into first grade, they gave me the tools of first grade. They give you big Crayolas that are about that bigger ground. Like eight of them in a box, red, orange, green, yellow, blue. I mean that's it. And then they give you a reader to see Jane run. They probably don't do that anymore. And then they they give you these, you know, pencils with like writing books where you learn to make your letters. And then they give you a paste you can eat. Those are the tools of first grade. So suppose you have the tools of first grade, you make a wrong turn in the school, and the next thing you know, you wind up in quantum physics, and it's like, <laughs> how do I use the tools of first grade in quantum physics? And that's not a pure example, but it's pretty close to what happens when we want to take our emotions and our observations in a cause and effect world and apply them to a God who can do anything. So I want to talk to you about that today. And, and, and to illustrate it, I want to take you to a Bible story. Uh, This guy is found in the book of Genesis um, at the, well, it's probably beginning about chapter 37 and going through chapter 50. A lot of ink is given to this guy. Uh, About as much ink is given to anybody. The guy's name is Joseph. Um, He is uh, one of the grandsons of Abraham, Um, well, great-grandsons of Abraham. His father is Jacob, his grandfather is Isaac, and then, of course, Abraham. Um, Let's just give you a little background for Joseph. Uh, Joseph enters life as kind of a blessed guy, but his blessing causes him trouble. He is the 11th of 12 brothers, and I would say this is a blended family, but that was too kind. that's too kind of a term. This family was smashed together, but they weren't blended. You ever see a family like that? I mean, it was like we were all sort of put together, and everybody's sort of unhappy with the arrangement. In those days, they had multiple wives. It wasn't God's will. People did a lot of crazy stuff. And, of course, that created all kinds of issues with the kids. But Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife. Hence, he became Jacob's favorite son. Now, you can imagine how that made his 10 older brothers feel. They hated Joseph. They hated him because he was daddy's favorite. They hated him because he got the best of everything. And I think they hated him because Joseph was just gifted by God. By the way, if you want people to hate you, all you have to do is have more, know more, and do more. That's true. And some of you, you just learned why your life works the way it does. I mean, if you have more, know more, and do more, people just don't know he's going to like you. And Joseph did. He had more. He knew more. He did more. And his 10 older brothers hated his guts. Well, to make matters worse, his daddy made Joseph the family accountant. It was Joseph's job to give performance reviews to his brothers. And so while they were a long way from home, they were all shepherds, Joseph was sent one day to his brothers, and they saw him coming, and they said, you know what, we are so tired of this guy being in our lives. Let's kill him. I don't know if you had sibling rivalry in your family or not, but chances are your brother's sister won't kill you. But they said, we're going to kill him. Joseph's oldest brother, who was responsible to their father, knew that wouldn't be a good idea because he would have to answer for it. So he said, let's, let's not kill him. Let's put him in this pit and make fun of him. And he thought, after a while, my brother's anger will calm down. I'll send Joseph back to daddy. But while the oldest brother was off doing an errand, slave traders came by. And now Joseph's nine older brothers said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. They'll kill him and we'll get money cold, isn't it? Well, they sell him as a slave. He's Hank, well, he's tied up and taken down to Egypt, Egypt's most powerful nation in the world. But Joseph doesn't know the language, doesn't know the cults, customs, doesn't know anything about Egypt. Now he's down there and he's, he winds up a slave. But he winds up a slave in a very rich man's house. He would be the guy that would be over all the Egyptian military. He doesn't have an estate, a house. He has an estate. I mean, there's, these are palatial grounds. And Joseph winds up the lowest slave in the house. But Joseph always brings his A-game. This is true. I mean, whether he's pushing a broom as a prisoner or if he's running the world, he always brings his A-game. So he goes into this household, and people just start noticing him. You know, Joseph just gets it done. And it isn't long before bigger jobs come along. We'll give that to Joseph. Then bigger jobs, we'll give that to Joseph. And he rises through the ranks. He's still a slave. He'll always be a slave. But he's rising through the ranks to the place where he gets to the top of the household, so much so that he's running the entire estate. I mean, basically, he sticks checks under Potiphar's nose, Potiphar signs. I mean, that's how trusted Joseph is. I mean, and he could look and say, well, you know what? Things have come pretty well for me, for a slave. My brothers hated me. They sold me. But I've gotten here and sort of risen through the ranks. But then trouble came. Potiphar was married to Arn Candy. And she starts, they didn't, you know what, they didn't think anything about adultery back in those days, uh, which is kind of like America today, now that I think about it. And so she starts trying to seduce Joseph, and Joseph is always leaving himself an out. But one day Joseph gets into the house, and everybody else is out of the house, and it's just Potiphar's wife, and she sees Joseph, and she just basically lays it on the table. She said, I want you to sleep with me. And Joseph's like, I can't do this. If I do this, a sin, it'll be a sin against God. It'll be a sin against my master who trusts me. I can't do this awful thing. And so he runs, and before he can get out of the room, she grabs his coat, and he just like goes right out of it. And she's left there holding his coat. Well, someone said, hell is no fury. And when Potiphar gets home, um, <laughs> Potiphar's wife has show and tell for him. She said, you know that that slave you brought into the house? He tried to rape me, and I screamed, and he ran out, and I see I've got his coat here. I've got the evidence on him. They come, they arrest him, they take him down to the prison on a trumped-up attempted rape charge, and now here's this kid who hasn't caused any of this, if you're looking for cause and effect. Here's a kid who now has been hated by his brother, sold as a slave, risen through the ranks, lied on by a woman who claims he tried to rape her. Now he's in the prison, he's wearing an orange jumpsuit, and he's pushing a broom. But at the prison, even there, Joseph brings his A-game. It isn't long before the head of the prison says, well, Joseph, tell you what, you're still a prisoner. You still got a number across your chest, but I'm just going to leave you here to administrate everything. And then it happened. A couple of the king's main men got arrested. I think the king thought they were trying to poison him. You know, when you read the Bible, it says the butler and the baker It could sound like these are sort of two low-level people, but no, these are like two of the top level. This guy would be; these two guys would have been over everything. Potter, everything Pharaoh ate or drank, so they're very important men. Pharaoh thinks one of them tries to kill him, tried to kill him. He doesn't know which one it is, so he just throws them both in jail, maybe kill them both. I should have told you that Joseph was given the gift of interpreting dreams. Well, that'll come in handy. So these two administrators for the king are in the prison with Joseph, and they kind of start telling him what's going down. And Joseph said, well, it's too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm innocent too. But one night, these two guys had dreams. And, and when they woke up the next morning, they told Joseph their dreams. And Joseph said, well, I, I know what those dreams mean. And he told the baker, I've got really bad news for you. Um, you're going to lose your life. And to the butler, he said, I've got really good news for you. You're going to be restored to your job and, f- and to your position. Well, it just happened, just exactly like Joseph said. The baker was executed. The butler was told, hey, get your Armani suit on. Come back. Just come back to the palace. We want you back. You're back in position here. And so the butler's so excited. so glad to be alive and get his job back. And as he's leaving the prison, Joseph said, hey, sir, when you get to the palace, would you tell the pharaoh about me? Would you tell him I'm down here on a trumped-up charge and I'm innocent? And the butler's like, oh, Yeah. Sure, man. The moment I get back there, I'm gonna tell the pharaoh that you're down here. <laughs> you think so? Man, that guy just barely got got out with his head. The last thing he's gonna do is go in and tell his boss, "Thank you for letting me back, sir. I need to let you know that down there is a prison. In prison, there's a guy who says he's innocent. Hey, they all say they're innocent." He went back to the palace and summarily forgot Joseph for two years. I love this man's story. What you're hearing is you're hearing the life of a young man from the time he's 17 to the time he's 29. Now, some of you know the rest of the story. I want you just to pretend that you don't, though, because Joseph didn't know the rest of the story. Suppose you go and you talk to Joseph right now, and you look at this young man, and all he's tried to do is help. He tried to serve his dad. He tried to serve Potiphar. He's tried to be a good prisoner. I mean, he's tried to serve everybody, and yet it just keeps blowing up in his face. If... What, what, if, what If you're living in a cause and effect world right now, what advice do you give Joseph? Because there's no doubt about it. I mean, if you, if you ask why he's stuck here in prison, the causes are clear. He's there because his brothers hated him. He's there because he was sold as a slave. He was there because a woman lied about him. He's there because a man who claimed to remember him deliberately forgot him. Are you beginning to see what I'm talking about? If you and I are locked in a world where we must know the reason for everything, we're not going to like it. The reasons are not going to be good and they're not going to take us anywhere. But let's just say you give Joseph advice right now. I mean, he's sitting there in the prison, he's languishing in the prison. He's been there one year, two years. I mean, no telling how long Joseph has really been there. We just know he's been forgotten the last two years. I mean, what's your advice? Would you advise him to give up on believing in God? When you're 29 years old, 13 years is a long time. 13 years is a long time to be kicked around. 13 years is a long time to be a slave and a prisoner. I mean, would you, would you say to Joseph, hey, buddy, if I were you, I'd just quit trying to do the right thing and look out for number one because all this trying to serve other people hadn't helped you any. Or would you encourage Joseph to become an atheist? I mean, I have friends who are atheists, and they say the reason why they're atheists is because bad things have happened in their life. So looking at Joseph right now, at 29 years old, would you tell him to become an atheist? Because after all, he can't make it out. He can't make sense of things. Let's play with that for just a moment. Let's take that statement. When I can't make sense... Of things. And I'm just going to be honest with you right now. This has been a tough week for me, like it's been for some of you. I can't make sense of some of the stuff that's happened to me this week. When I can't make sense of things, blank. What well, goes there? I mean, what do you do when you can't make sense out of injustice? I think about that beautiful young woman who was peacefully protesting hate and a young hate-filled racist takes an automobile and rams it into a crowd and takes her life away. I can't make sense out of that. I can't make sense out of injustice. I can't make sense when I have, haven't harvested what I planted. The Bible says you reap what you sow, but some of you know what it's like to plant good stuff and get bad stuff in return. In your marriage, you've planted good stuff and you're getting bad stuff back. And You've planted kindness, but you're getting hate. And You've planted hard work, and you're getting disrespect. When I can't make sense of things blank and... What do you do when you can't make sense of things when your hopes have been dashed? We'll talk about that in week three. I mean, when you've got this beautiful hope and somebody just throws it on the ground and laughs at you, how do you make sense out of that? And Joseph, let me tell you what I think is one of the hardest things of Joseph's story, because I've lived it. I mean, look at poor Joseph. What do you do when your turnaround has been aborted? I think that's the hardest thing to deal with. It's for me. You know, because if you're Joseph, and you're hated by your brothers, and you sold as a slave, and the next thing you know, you're getting promoted, 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 until you're the top person in the part of his house. It's like, okay, life is turning around for me. Life is going to be better now. Boom, doesn't see it coming. Woman claims he tried to rape her. He's in prison. Pharaoh's servants are there. He interprets their dream. Okay, life is turning around for me. Boom, they forgot me. I think that's one of the hardest things of all. When I can't make sense of things, blank. Well, let's try a couple of things. When I can't make sense out of things, God doesn't exist. I mean, that's very popular in our world today. If I can't make sense out of things, then there must not be a God. If, there, if of all the things that happened in my life made sense, if there was some semblance of purpose that I can see very clearly, then I would believe in the existence of God. But when I can't make sense out of things, God doesn't exist. Well, although that's popular, there are some problems with that. The first problem is, is it makes the proving grounds for the existence of God in my feeble mind and my limited experience. The second problem is is that it assumes that God is servant to my ability to interpret cause and effect. So I reach up to this great God who created everything, wrote the code for DNA, and I pull him down to my mind and say, if I can't make sense of things, then God doesn't exist. It would be like a three-year-old who thinks that the only boats are the ones who float in his bathtub and denies the existence of an aircraft carrier because it won't fit. That is what we humans are like when we say, if I can't make sense of things, God doesn't exist. But here's the, here's the big one. If I say, if I can't make sense out of things, God doesn't exist, it, it leaves me on my own. That's a big one. Think about that for a moment. If, if, I, if I give up on God and I say, because life doesn't make sense, you don't exist. The next thing is, that happens is I, I'm, I'm by myself. You know, we we often talk about the thief on the cross. And when we say that, we think about the one who repented and who believed in Jesus. But remember, there was another thief. Do you remember what he said to Jesus? This is in Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, if I can't understand, if you don't get me off this cross, then you don't matter. And there are people today who, when they can't make sense of life, they deny the existence of God, and they're left on their own. You know, one of my favorite people the last 30 years is Steve Jobs. He's a co-founder of Apple and, of course, went on to do great things uh, with Pixar and then came back to Apple and really did great things. But you also know that Steve got pancreatic cancer. I need to let you know that Steve claimed to be at least an agnostic, if not an atheist. When he was a kid growing up, he went to church until he was 13 years old, and he went in to visit his pastor one day in Southern California, and he said, does God know everything? And the pastor said, yes. So Steve whipped out a magazine that showed the starving children's picture in in Africa, and he threw it on the pastor's desk, and he said, does God know about this? And the pastor said, yes. He said, well, if God knows about this and doesn't do anything, I don't believe in him. And that was it for Steve. The pastor tried to explain that there was more to it, but Steve just wasn't interested. If God knows about this and doesn't do anything, God doesn't exist. And so for the rest of his life, he lived as an non I love his biography. Walter Isaacson, of course, wrote the definitive biography of Steve Jobs. And Walter Isaacson says, uh, talks about a conversation that he had with Steve not long before Steve died. He said, this is Walter Isaacson, I remember sitting in his backyard in his garden one day and he started talking about God. He said, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more, and I find myself believing a bit more. I kind of, well, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife that when you die, it doesn't all disappear. And then he paused for a second, and he said, yeah. But sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. He said, and he paused again, and he said, And that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. Man, there's a guy I respect for his creativity and yet here is a guy who said, if I can't make sense out of things, God doesn't exist. And you can hear the loneliness and the emptiness with which he died. And hopefully that changed before he did die. Well, let's try another one. Let's try this. Um, When I can't make sense out of things... God exists, but he can't be trusted. Well, now, the first one is sort of the non-theist mantra. The second one is sort of the Christian viewpoint that some of you could have today. You say, Mark, I, I thought God was doing this and didn't work out, and I can't make sense out of things, so yeah, God is part of my theological repertoire, but I, I, don't, I don't trust him. I don't pray anymore. When I can't make sense out of things, God exists, but he can't be trusted. (laughs) I'll talk about this story next week, so I won't talk about it a lot today. I love the story of God calling Israel out of Egypt into their land. And God had promised the people of Israel that he would bring them out of Egypt as slaves and give them their own country, which still belongs to them, by the way. And God said... You know, if you'll just follow me, I'll lead you there. It would have been an 11 day journey. But they got to a, a, a break, they got to a make or break point. They came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. They were just a little ways away from the promised land, close enough to send spies. And they sent 12 spies over into Canaan. God had said, This land is majestic. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. I will help you get it. It's going to belong to you. God, is going to, God says it's going to happen. It's my purpose. It will happen. But the 12 spies, at least 10 of them, got over there and they started living in a cause and effect world because they saw the beautiful grapes over there that God told them were there, but they also saw giants. They saw grapes and giants, grapes and giants, cognitive dissonance. It's beautiful. It's the land that God has promised to us, but we'll get killed trying to get it. It's grapes and giants. Now, you know what happened? Because they choked at that moment of destiny saying, I can't make sense out of things, therefore God exists, but he can't be trusted. They had to wander in the wilderness until that whole generation died off and a new generation could go in and take the land. I'm not trying to be too metaphorical today, but you know what? Here's the thing about being in a place where you've quit believing that God can be trusted because you can't make sense of things. Isn't it true that you tend, just like the Israelites in those days, isn't it ten, true that you tend to wander around in the deserts of life? You're just burning up your life, using up your life. I mean, I, I understand. If you talk to Joseph, he's sitting there in the prison. He's done his best, and he just, it, life just keeps blowing up on him from the time he's 17 to 29, it's just one disaster after another, and now he's sitting in prison with no hope, no future, And you could say to him, well, Joseph, I'm with group number one. <laughs> I can't make sense of things. If I were you, God doesn't exist. Or Joseph, I, don't, I, don't, I can't make sense of things. I'm a God follower. I go to New Spring Church. But I'll tell you what, if my life had been like your life, I'd just say God exists, but he can't be trusted. See, because all the effects in Joseph's life are bad, and they can all be tied to bad causes. He became a slave because his brothers hated him. That was the, that was the reason. He... Be, goes to jail because a woman lied about him. He is sitting in jail now because he's forgotten. All of the causes for Joseph's effects are bad. But what happened? Well, one day the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, has a dream. Freaks him out. No ordinary dream. He has a sense that it has to do with destiny. He calls in his, all of his guys with Mojo, and he says to them, tell me what the dream means. He's like, sir, we don't have any idea. And so Pharaoh's racking his brain trying to figure out this important dream that he knows in which the future of Egypt is invested. And the butler said, oh, I could have had a V8. There's a guy down in the jail <laughs> whose name is Joseph, and the man can interpret dreams. Now, you've got to re- just get this in your head. He wakes up in the morning, puts on his orange jumpsuit with the number. He's in the prison. Now... They are sending for him from the palace, and they have all kinds of stuff for him to put on. You know, he's got his head shaved now, and he's putting on the the Armani suit and the bling and all the stuff the Egyptian wore. So now Joseph looks like a totally different guy. I mean, he looks like Egyptian. He talks like Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian. (laughs) Just want to see if anybody was here in the 80s. (laughs) And he goes in to see the Pharaoh, and he says, Sir, you're right. That dream, man, that's about the future. Tell you what it means. You're going to have seven really, really... Prosperous years. I mean you're gonna have bumper crops. You're gonna be (laughs) you're gonna be balancing the budget and paying down the surplus. I mean you're gonna have seven really extraordinary years. And then right after that, you're gonna have seven years of depression. And sir, here's what God is trying to tell you. In those very, very prosperous years, you need to hold back, you need to save, you need to keep produce back for the future, and you need some whiz-bang cabinet secretary, czar to just manage this whole affair. And Pharaoh's like, Well, son, you're the brightest man in the room. I'm just going to make you second only to me. Everybody's going to answer to you except me. And if you want to get something done, they have to ask you for permission. And by the way, since I'm on your agenda, (laughs) since Pharaoh was on Joseph's agenda, I'd make the argument he's the most powerful man in the world. We used to call that upwardly mobile in the 90s. Not bad. Not bad to be the most powerful man in the world by the time you're 29. Isn't that peculiar? The reasons for all the things that happened to him were bad. If he got tangled up in the weeds of trying to figure out why all these bad things have happened to me, he wouldn't have liked the reasons. They wouldn't have taken him anywhere. But that is the beauty of God. He steps into our cause and effect world, and of course, he's not subject to cause and effect. And he brings his purpose. And he can even take the things that people have done to hurt us, and he can take those things and re-engineer them to bring Blessing. That is the magnificence of God. I mean, everything that happened to Joseph was bad. It wasn't God's fault he was hated. It wasn't God's fault he was a slave. It was not God's fault he was lied on by a woman. It was not God's fault that he went to prison. None of those things were God's fault, and yet it didn't stop God from his purpose, and that is what God can do in your life. That's why I'm challenging you. Don't live your life by reasons. Live your life according to God's purpose. Here at New Spring, you guys know we're not a denominational church. And we always say, you've heard me say this ad nauseum if you're a long-time newspringer, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. What does that mean? I mean, in real terms, in practical terms. I'll tell you what it means. If you have a relationship with God, you're not locked into this lower strata of cause and effect. You've been summoned up to live in a strata of purpose. And even though you have to function in a cause and effect world, your life is not handcuffed. It's not subject to a cause and effect world where you have to find the reasons why all these things happen. You're living in a world where God can inject his purpose into your life. Well, we played with that statement, didn't we? Um, When I can't make sense of things, God doesn't exist. When I can't make sense of things, God exists but can't be trusted. As I close out today, I'm going to put the sermon in one sentence. Ready? When I can't make sense of things, he can. When I can't make sense of things, he can. He's God. Nobody causes him to do anything. He does what he wishes. God is always in the manual override mode. In Isaiah 55 and the 8th verse, the Bible says, God speaking, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I love that. You New Springers know I use that verse almost every week. It's why you'll never be able to think your way to God. You're too accustomed to a cause and effect world. You want to bring a 29-year-old man to the most important position in the world? I promise you, you wouldn't take him through the trail that God allowed Joseph to be taken through. But God's, well, let me just tell you what that means in Hebrew. When The thoughts and the ways thing. God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your, thought, not your ways. What God is saying is, look, my plans and your plans are not the same. All of us have plans for destiny We, we have and plans for life. There's nothing wrong with forming a plan, you I know, mean, Plan your work, work your plan. I mean, but God is saying, my, my plan for you is on a higher level. You're playing checkers, and I'm playing 3D chess. So if you think about this, if you, God up in heaven somewhere has the schematic for your life. He's got all the diagrams, He has all the plans. But then God throws throws us a curveball because, you know, here's the thing. When you start following God after a while, you think, well, I sort of have an idea what God's plan for my life is. But God says, hey, it isn't just that my plan isn't your plan. God says the way I put the pieces together would not be the way you put the pieces together. God is saying "If, if you were looking at the plan, you would assemble the parts in a different order than I would. God says my thoughts, my plan is higher than your plan. And the way I put things together is better than the way you put things together. That is why a relationship with God is something that allows you to rise above, out of the strata of a cause and effect broken world, and rise into the strata of a God who loves you, who can't be stopped, who can't be thwarted, and will work his plan in your life no matter what anybody does to hurt you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.